Hey guys. Hey. Hey, hey, hey there. Welcome to uh, another episode of Cameras or Whatever. Yeah. You know, I feel welcome. We have our friend Chris Dowsett, who is a uh, photographer, videographer, generally smart guy that uh, I like to talk to about stuff. And when I've needed to know things, he's advised me and... Um, and vice versa, I think. Yeah, I think he can offer some uh, wisdom. Yes, the friendship that is between the three of us is more of a mastermind. All of our minds are shared. And uh, <laughs> if it was possible, which it will be in the future, that we could actually connect our brains, we would. But right now it'll just be communication. That'll be the next episode. Yeah, that's the next episode. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and uh, of course, Cameron's here too. Hi. Yeah, we're coming together like Voltron. It's awesome. <laughs> um Let's maybe give Chris a second, like talk a little bit about um, what your background is and what you like to do, how you spend your time. Well, I started, I started out of concert photography and event photography years and years ago and leaped from that to one year in Victoria uh, at a professional photography school that is now debunked and bankrupt. And I also spent a year in Victoria for totally different reasons at a different time, but that's to interesting. Totally different. Totally different. So um, yeah, I leaped out of that, um, luckily into kind of a socially connected film sense. I, I met a few people that were working on some good, big projects, some good, big names, and I got deeper into the commercial and the video world than I was ready for mentally at the time. And it kind of accelerated my learning in both technical photography and, and filmmaking, I've since steered my own direction much more into a feature film realm. I am spending almost all of my time learning how to uh, tell stories, structure stories, and write stories. And uh, I will ultimately end up as a director and uh, screenwriter. And that is in the five, 10-year realm. And I've spent the last few years, and since leaving school about five years ago, I've spent uh, my time mixing between making music videos and or doing commercial photography spots, uh, diving into composite photoshoppery and or motion graphics, you know, this and that. There's kind of a general interest that I have upon everything, but my primary interest lies in uh, being the general contractor, knowing a little bit about everything and then ultimately directing a group of people that are excellently skilled in technical departments that I don't know. Well, and the reason that I thought you'd have a lot to add to this conversation is that today I want to talk about filters, basically. I'm mostly with like preset packs, but that general discussion of how you treat the colors of your imagery is really different between photography and video and has a different history and different terminology and different ways of thinking. And I think there's I don't know. Those, those things need to come together. There is amazing things that have happened in the video production side of things of how you treat the colors in your work. And uh, I don't think it has happened in the same way for photo, but I think there's a lot to be said. And then also you aren't using as much um, some of the filters that we're going to talk about today. So I, I was hoping you could take on a bit of the role of like the consumer that is looking to, you know, invest in this, like ask all the questions that everybody yeah. wants to know when they're about to buy a preset pack. I, I think that is clearly the perspective that I'll offer is, uh, I have a relationship with looks, presets, filter packs, but it's nowhere near as intimate to, uh, the association with film specifically emulating the, the exact looks or feels of film, uh, like you guys have. 
and I think my brain rests kind of more in the in the realm of the average person that's going to go out and try and make some some really great images that just look and feel good and right. Well, right now, how do you dial in most of your look? Is it in Photoshop or is it in Lightroom? Um, so I would wh- say where does it happen? The the first step that I think I took into the look department was similar to most people that wrap their head around it. When VSCO came out, it was, uh, whether it be on your phone or whether it be the filter packs that you got in Lightroom, I immediately started to abuse some of the more liberally applied looks. And mm. and they were just things that I hadn't thought. Like the way that they sculpted these looks in Lightroom were, they used Lightroom's abilities in such a unique combination that it got looks that I had never seen Lightroom get before. And I used to think that Lightroom had a limit and it, and it had a Lightroom look. Like if something was graded in Lightroom, I was like, that was graded in Lightroom. Right. But it was more or less that I could see my own bad habits where if someone abused my bad habit and I saw a final product they made, I could just pick it out. Cause I was like, that's a shadow fill that is. Yeah. I was going to say, are, are we talking about clarity? That's and, the uh, clarity. That's <laughs> the whatever. And <laughs> when you specifically see how well some of the, the presets are built uh, from all three of these companies, they go deep into the, any way you can adjust your settings and values, whether it be the, in the hues and the shadows and the color, the curves and everything is adjusted. Maybe a way to say it is that it, um, nothing in those presets were things that I had seen in any YouTube tutorial or anybody had told me about doing. Nobody was talking about using the Lightroom processing in these ways. I know. Yeah. Nope. Also, the uh, camera calibration module was yeah. one I think that most people just looked at it and said, you know, like, well, what do I do? Yeah, this is automatic. Something something happens here in the background, and I'm not going to think too hard about it. Mm-hmm. And then something somebody figured it out and, and put it to work. If I can kind of clarify where, where I came from when I first leaped into specifically VSEO, I was very anti-actions in Photoshop's and anti-presets. Even if it was a plugin that you could get for Photoshop or After Effects, anything that was creatively arranged by someone else that all I had to do was click a button and get that effect, I was against it because it was like artistically, I don't know, it was not pure. It felt like it was wrong or cheating. And what I can say by developing a relationship with VSEO is I don't think that I can sometimes get as good of a result, even if I sat there and and dialed it forever, because they spend a lot of time actually engineering the looks they get. All I have to do is pick and feel the style. It's like picking a film stock that you would have in the day. You would have picked one that represents and and parallels your color tastes and your, your, your look and you'd shoot it. Well, So for the format of today, I think the best way to approach this is let's spend the first half doing a bit of what we're doing now. Let's talk about why we use the methods that we do to, to approach film. So be that presets or creating a stack of curves in Photoshop or, just um, how do we end up dealing with it the ways that we do and what are the effects of that? Um, what does it mean for the creative side of our imagery? What has it done on average for all the photos that we see out there? And then we'll take the second half to talk about some specifics of the most popular packs out there, especially being uh, VSCO or Visco or wait, what's the other one people say? VSCO. VSCO. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the visual supply that? company. Yeah. And then uh, Mastin Labs. And uh, also Rad Labs, which is quite popular. Um, okay, so the philosophy of how we approach these things. Cameron, what did you do before 
these filters got good? I kind of had a, a mix of different things that I was using. I was using this uh, Imaginomic for my portraiture, which was pretty heavy-handed stuff. I've never heard of that. I mean, yeah. It's one of those ones that, that um, really drastically affects the smoothness of skin, you know, without like damaging sharpness. Right. Was this you in know? Photoshop or Lightroom? This was in Photoshop. So this is, yeah, every edit was a job because you'd have to take it over to Photoshop, run on this plugin. It didn't have anywhere near the convenience that these presets do. And so I was using that for a little while. Um, you know, I have my own set of tricks that I learned in Photoshop just from playing around. Um, adjustment filters, like using the uh, gradient maps. That's how I did all my toning and stuff like that. Right, and that'd be to give like your shadows and highlights a bit of a different color temperature. Yeah. You know, like I was doing fading before. <laughs> before it was cool. <laughs> That's all you have yeah. to say is before dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> before. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I was doing it like using gradient maps and just, you know, with using a black and white gradient map and then just choosing the amount of fade that I wanted to throw on it. And, you know, all of a sudden it was like a thing. And I was doing it like I was doing it very, very subtly. I was just bringing the blacks up from absolute black and the whites down from absolute white. So I wasn't on like a make it look like film mission. But yeah, and then I got Alien Skin and started using that. And it's exactly the same thing. It's it's a plugin that opens up its own window. And, you know, like considerably better in terms of what they're capable of. So I was actually pretty happy with Alien Skin for a while. But... Comparing it to film, like, yeah, no. Well, when you, I watch older tutorials about um, how to get a film look, mm -hmm. you look at the final product and there's nothing to do with film at all. No, not even close. I have no idea what anybody was thinking, including myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I was thinking that I was, you know, onto something mm -hmm. until somebody came along and showed me that I was wrong. <laughs> well, the way that I was doing things was usually... Um, I'd have kind of a set of actions I built that would give me the basic layout of a stack of layers that would, uh, I would usually use on most images. So one of those would be a desaturated layer that has a soft blend mode on it, which would give this really nice contrast that I still like a lot actually, and haven't found any other way. And I still do this sometimes. It's great. And then I would have just some generic curves layers that I would push in different ways. So maybe add or remove contrast with a few stacked curves layers, then would, uh, you know, have some generic layers to clone stuff out and, you know, make those basic changes. But all of the real changing happened in Photoshop and all that I was using Lightroom for, or I guess before that I wasn't doing Nexus Bridge, but when Lightroom came out, then I would just use Lightroom to change the exposure and the white balance and get it synced between files. And I never thought it could do much useful stuff other than that. I didn't really trust it with my processing until these right. filter packs came out. It started out as, for me anyway, it started out as like a, a really excellent cataloging software. And that was mm. pretty much all I really thought about it as. Except for, I mean, white balance, just like you said, it's just like you do the basic changes and then for any heavy lifting, just took it over Photoshop. Yeah, I think it's funny because a lot of people still look at it as the opposite. Casual shooters, especially that I've talked to, look at Lightroom as first it's a place to process their photos. And that's so strange to me. And like they'll not use the catalog to manage. Um, <laughs> but what, like the big change for everybody is once you look at Lightroom as a holistic, like this is your photography. Everything as much as possible will happen here if you let it and it'll do a great job. Yeah. When I started using Lightroom, it was all edit 
zero digital asset management. Right. So <laughs> the cataloging and the organizing was something that had to come as a counter effort uh, or like a complementary effort because uh, I remember the the massive leap that Lightroom took that was so fundamentally different is just syncing like a simple black and white conversion and you can paste it on everything. I remember that was a revelation. It was like, oh my God, this is going to save so much time. But I definitely was one of the people that used the effects like as much as possible trying to, like I was um, saying earlier is the, the effects of even turning maybe vibrance all the way up and saturation all the way down or vibrance all the way down and saturation all the way up. And what would happen when you just slid them around as much as possible. And that's why I, I confidently kind of thought I had maxed out what Lightroom could do. Cause I was like, this is, <laughs> I have, I have spent hours and hours and hours in this program and I know everything about it. I mean, when you switch between these filters, you can see that it's so much more than what we would have probably been doing on our own, where we would basically be changing often it'd just be like the amount of contrast was like the, some of the biggest changes we were making. And then like yeah, the other warmth or coolness overall, but now it's like, as you switch between them, you need to look at what, how did the greens respond and the reds and the blues. If this mm -hmm. has a lot of sky in the image, I'm going to deal with it one way. If it has a lot of skin, I'm going to deal with it another way. If there's a lot of green, like completely each tone responds way differently. And I don't think a lot of people were doing that before. And all of a sudden it's like, well, now, now that is the most important thing. And um, I'm surprised that it uh, took so long for us to figure that out. A major difference that I had with my relationship with Lightroom and Photoshop, uh, the difference between global adjustments and local adjustments, uh, Lightroom being more of a global editor where as much as you can adjust your secondaries specifically by grabbing the shadow slider and or going into, let's just say, the red channel and changing the saturation of the reds, that is still a global red adjustment. Mm -hmm. And where you localize it in Photoshop is still it's still a worthy process is still how a you lot mean, of like, ma like masking it in and stuff. It, it would be localized by a shape. You would mm -hmm. be doing it within the confines of a selection. You'd select around the head and only adjust the saturation of the reds in the face maybe, and not the rest of the skin or you do the sky and you'd select where you actually want these adjustments to go. And if I can say there's my relationship as it pertains to looks now is, is very much just where I start with, where you get comfortable with shooting with a look in mind. And then you'd still go, whether it be Photoshop or Lightroom, I would still go into the luminance of the blue in the sky after I've applied the look and still make those blues darker or brighter or still change the hue of this. But they're really good starting points. I spent way more time being local in my general approach before the presets. Like I thought if I want to deal with the sky, the right way is always to mask it and paint it in or, uh, you know, do an auto mask, things like that. I, that's, I was constantly doing that. I wouldn't target it as a color. I wouldn't think of it that way. Would you do it now? Yeah, definitely. I would, even if I'm using a preset, like a lot of the time I don't, there's not that often that I'm, it's only when I'm in a rush that I use a preset without modifying it at all. Usually either the reds or the blues, those are the main ones. Like either I want the sky to be a little desaturated. So I'll go into the HSL adjustments, mm -hmm. grab the blue saturation, bring it down a notch, maybe bring it towards the green a little, maybe darken it a bit. Then the reds, often it's playing with how orange or red they are to flatten out the skin tone a bit. Um, if there's, you know, it can even out some blotchiness, things like that. Mm -hmm. You can't go too far with it because if you really flatten out the primary parts of the skin. You can take all the red out of the lips or out of things that are supposed to be red, but yep. I usually make one or two little tweaks 
in the HSL area just for the specific needs of the photo. I guess the thing I was wondering when you first said that is you said you said you'd still want to make those local changes, but I was assuming that you meant in Photoshop. But really, what you're saying is that you're going to take it into these modules in Lightroom. Yeah, I do a lot more of that in Lightroom. Whereas right. previously in Photoshop, there would be a layer that brings maybe the um, like a curve that's just darkening the whole image, and I just mask that to the sky, right, or to all the blue in the image. So why I use the terms. Uh, primary and secondary are global and local. Primary and secondary specifically comes from video grading when you're working in uh, programs like DaVinci Resolve. And part of the reason why you have to do what you're doing, Tyler, is you have to think of local or secondary grading by any way that that value can be described. So if you can describe it by saying it's the red channel, then you go into the red channel. And the reason why you have to do that with video is because if you do it with a shape, it's changing every single frame. So if you just say the reds have to be, the entire red channel has to change in hue or and or saturation, then as the frames change to the next frame to the next frame, they can reassess and still do the effect. Could you maybe take in 60 seconds, how could you explain to a photographer the way that um, color grading, color adjustments are made in video as opposed to photography? Like what, what's the, what are some of the like main things that uh, are different in the approach? I would say uh, part of what is specifically different is the attention to local details that are done on purpose. So if you go far enough back when you shoot in film back in the day, so you shoot on 35 millimeter film uh, for a feature film, you go through the process not of digital color grading, but what was called color timing. So it was literally a bath that you dunked the film in for a certain amount of time and it would adjust the film in whatever magical ways it did for whatever film and emulsions and, you know, witches brew they had in there. And they'd pull it out after a certain amount of time and it would have a certain amount of effect. And then you'd get, you'd get <laughs> local effects, what, what you'd call local effects by doing things like dodging and burying classically, but it was a painstaking process that, where it, it, it's it's it funny because think, 60 seconds just is not the yeah. framework to say <laughs> this in. It makes me think about how people used to, uh, if you just owned a computer, you'd be a lot more comfortable in DOS. It's like you would understand what you're doing at a lower level. And it's similar, I think, right now in how you work with photography. Like we all understand everything at a much higher level because we don't have to work at these much more difficult low level problems like how to make a color adjustment. So you spend less time really getting very comfortable with what each adjustment means and how you, how you're going to execute it and things like that. We all deal with it at a bit more of a simplified level yet, especially if you're using a preset. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I, I think that's one of the reasons why looks are seen potentially as curses to a less educated audience is that they become used excessively. I had seen a tweet a couple of weeks ago that said, VSCO look should be like a woman wears makeup. It should be enough to make a good difference, but not enough to know that it's there. Yep. And it's true because a lot of people, if they don't actually get what is happening at all, they will just abuse the heck out of it. And sometimes what, what we may know would be the right type of look or the film look for, let's just say shooting on a bright, summer day isn't the right look that would be for an indoor sporting event. 
it's like they, they don't work in both places, but I think that makeup tweet is just an excellent mantra. And it's something that like, I know Cameron and I talked to other people about too. It's like, yeah, it should just be enough to enhance the image. But if it draws any attention to itself, you're doing it wrong. Nobody should look at it and be like my favorite thing about this photo is the filter. You know, this is literally my favorite lesson that I've ever learned with aesthetics is I didn't think I was going to mention this in this, but I used to install hardwood floor about 10 years ago for two and a half years. And hardwood is specifically different because it's only aesthetic. It has no structural quality. So it's only supposed to just look pretty. It's essentially like you're painting a floor with hardwood look. It's only for the look. So when I was learning, he had a mantra, which was, I would constantly go up to him and ask him, is this right? Is this right? Is this right? Because I would point and I would point down to it and I'd say, is that right? And the mantra was, if you have to ask if that's right or wrong, it's wrong. (laughs) Because no (laughs) one part of the floor should draw your attention more than the floor itself. It should all give just an essence or a feel. And this kind of lends itself to very high level feature film professionals. The, like the guy who is the, the guy cinematographer, his name's Roger Deakins. He is quoted often as saying that if a person watches one of his films and says, I really liked that one shot or that one scene, he's failed. Cause he's like, I want you to just feel the whole thing and nothing should draw your attention, whether it be a sky that popped or a the grass that was really green. And if it did, it should be the whole film that feels that way. Yep. Otherwise it takes you out of the story and takes you into some kind of a process. Yeah, or something that we've said in our conversations, Chris, was that uh, that's the reason that you want to execute technically at a perfect level. You want to execute technically perfect so that nobody has any attention paid to how did you do this technically? Mm-hmm. If it's all right, then the conversation is all about the, the product, the, the art, the person in the photo, the subject, the, yeah. um, and it's not about like the, like, what did you do for the lighting? It's all about the final image. In one of my least favorite ways that I see this done is when I see like, um, one shoot that someone went out on and they shoot 50 photos and they post an album and each photo is, you can tell it's similar lighting, whatever. And it's just a different look applied. Like it's like this black and white look, this, this filter, this, whatever. And to me, especially when they're side by side, it like totally takes me out of what the essence of what the shoot actually was. And it feels more like, um, well, I, I suppose one of the things that, uh, the byproduct of photography when it's kind of done as photography. And when you look at cinematography and you look at feature films, there almost seems to be this huge gap where it's like this massive quality gap where often photographers won't even think to use feature films as inspiration for photography. Cause it's so much more technically like honed and perfect that you think, Oh, that's not the same as photography. I'm just going to go out with my camera, shoot a bunch of photos. And <laughs> well, because a team of 15 people worked on lighting this one shot instead of, you know, you and an assistant. Exactly. So it's, it's somewhat of a different discussion that is an unfair comparison. I often say with applying video or film filmmaking specifically, when you compare it to photography, it is an unfair comparison because one person can be a photographer or a few. And then it like, I don't know if, You've ever seen the credits after a film, but it's a lot of people (laughs) and it's a lot of people that have that really technically mastered their tiny specific thing that they did. And it might be something like color grading, which 
Like that, that is, is one job. One person's job is only the color, not the composition or the uh, direction or the, it's just color. And not that day for their life. Yeah, you exactly. Know, day after day, <laughs> this is what they consider. Um, th- some of the things that you could also mention in like how they deal with colors, like the tools are also quite different in that there's often physical tools that you're working with. And honestly, I just wish this would come to photography where you have physical color wheels you manipulate with your hands where there's usually three, one for the shadows, midtones and the highlights that you push and pull in different directions of a, a color wheel. And, uh, you know, as you say, push more yellows into the highlights, maybe that means you want to bring them, um, back in the, or out of the shadows or things like that. You, you will physically move them around until they kind of feel right. You'll bring up the levels of the highlights. Whereas the, the, the fact that we deal with a, usually just a linear line in most photo editing tools, it's a completely different mental perspective. You look at what will happen to the colors so differently, I think just based on the interface you're presented with. So everybody just like Google a, uh, look for uh, like video editing or color grading studio. And you'll just see like the, the interface that they use. Like in Google it. image search so you can see what they look like. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it'll give you a sense of like, you could look at colors so differently from the way you look at them now. And I never realized that until I started seeing the actual setups they use. You know, this is even a very, this is a very simple, uh, thing that I usually tell people when they're beginning in Lightroom is that Lightroom's interface uh, has the two side panels and the two top top and bottom panels. So if you keep the side panel in the develop module, so the, on the right you have your sliders and all your adjustments, that side panel is by default not very wide. So it's like it's it's a rather skinny panel, which means all the sliders Holy. are pretty small. And if you just grab that panel and make it wider, that's much more of a video perspective where uh, like I'll give you the perfect example. I had, I worked on a, a project with a guy that was doing visual effects and he was doing some really complicated color work and visual effects work. And he had all of these kind of mantras on a chalkboard right beside him. And one of them just said 0.001 is your <laughs> friend. So it's like just that much of a change in percentage somewhere <laughs> is what you want. Not 1%. It might be 0.001% of something. And if you just drag that 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 uh, side panel to be twice as wide, your sliders become twice as big. Therefore, your motions with your mouse or your touchpad are that much more subtle. Especially your curves. That's where I need it the most. Yeah. And even in Photoshop, this is something that most people wouldn't know is if you put a point on your curve, you can use your directional like up, down, left, right on your keyboard to actually influence that point on the curve, which also makes it more subtle. So I think all of us make the mistake and made the mistake of grabbing curves and just is like, Oh, S curve. Oh, I'll show you an S curve. It's like, yeah. boom, you know, like wait till they see this. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> and then we post screenshots of our S curves. Like just like <laughs> huge, huge adjustments. And I think that, yeah, we all did it. But what I appreciate specifically is that subtlety that I would want to achieve by sitting there. They have taken the time to achieve it on my behalf. And when you buy it and purchase it, you're essentially just trading your time. You're saying, I would inevitably take this exact same time to do this very subtle thing that you've done, but because you've done it here, I'll give you some money and you give me your, your work. And there's an article time. on a prominent photo site right now that I almost wanted to do a full response to, but I'm instead not even going to link to it. <laughs> Hopefully it just fades away. But um, there is an argument to be made out there that all of these filters are ruining photography. And a lot of people 
think this, a lot of especially photographers that have been working for a long time, look at these filters and they're like, well, now everything looks the same. And th- th- that was actually said in the article. And I that boggled my mind. Really, all this photography looks the same to you now? Because the simple response is, did it all look the same when there were only, you know, a few dozen film stocks out there to use? When everybody was working with film and all you could do is adjust your, you know, your exposure in the camera and then some of the details about how you develop it later, was everything the same because we were using the same film stock? No, it wasn't. And that doesn't happen now because we're using a similar set of tools. And I don't know. I I find that very strange. I I feel like it's, it's an overly simplistic take on it. You know, like I, I think that there's, there's some truth to it, you know, like we can look at certain products, you know, like specifically like, you know, something like Rad Lab, in my opinion, like everything in there has this kind of Instagram-y look that's a little bit like everything's a step too far. And after a while, I look at it all and I just see one thing, you know, and I stop seeing, I don't even really care about what the photos are anymore. Well, or the thing that as these filters were a little less mature was, you know, a faded black That'd be mm-hmm. like the giveaway. You're like, oh, well, the, the black point is raised. That mm-hmm. was the preset. <laughs> and yeah. there's a bunch of magenta or blue in the shadows or, you know, like there's these giveaways, but they are not like that now. That's not really what we're talking about with these well-executed presets. There isn't right. a giveaway. Like you can't glance at any of the really well-constructed ones and immediately know what it is. Yeah, I think uh, the debate over any particular influence to photography, like standardizing it or f- making it all the same, it's ridiculous for a couple of reasons. One is you constantly hear the stats of like there's a hundred billion photos taken a day. W- what's your sample size here when you're talking about it all looks the same? You're like, how? <laughs> like, there's a lot of photos out there. So okay, but I get that there's effects, there's byproducts of things like a very popular, well-marketed preset pack and also specifically uh, VSCO's um, iPhone app. Is, yeah, it's my favorite thing to edit. There's a lot to, to say about that separate from these Lightroom filters. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that is essentially the edit suites and the, the, the active photography happening in your mobile phone. But it brings me my favorite quote on the subject because I used to stress about this uh, of thinking, oh my God, like I wonder if it is, you know, I wonder if, Specifically, I think of what happened when like GoPros came out. I was like, oh, now everybody can shoot it like this high quality and my it brings the value of my work down. And then, oh my God, the iPhone camera is getting so good that people can shoot commercial campaigns on it. Oh, it's all getting, it's like worse. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of this one quote. I can't remember. It was a commercial photographer back in like, um, it was right when the 35 mil uh, film camera came out, was invented. And he was a large format like eight by 10 portrait photographer, um, like commercial photographer. And his quote is saying the 35 millimeter camera is going to turn bums into photographers and photographers into bums. <laughs> and he was slamming the 35 millimeter film camera. <laughs> you know, it's like in the exact same way, in the exact same way. It's hilarious. It's, it's, this is something that, uh, you know, it'll just transcend us. It, it, this conversation will never go away. It'll just keep on changing and changing and changing. But I do see that there is this byproduct of, in the same way that I used to think I could tell things were edited in Lightroom, there was a like liberal app application of Lightroom where I could tell. And then I still see stuff where I'm like, that's a VSCO look. I can see it and I'm like, aha. But mm-hmm. you know, most people that are have any weight in being worth watching, like the styles I actually like to look at, um, you don't see these 
these looks really echoing into their work because we kind of get that it's a good place to start or it's a, it works sometimes here or blah, blah, blah. And you also know that if, if you apply this look or if you have, like if your color grading is the thing that makes your photo good and your photo isn't good beyond yeah. that, it's like, <laughs> you got some other problems. You got some other problems. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, well, I think like this, the idea of, there's so many easy examples like guitars. You can go and buy a guitar for very cheap that will sound as good as anything else. And it doesn't matter because you can't play guitar very well. Or I, you know, I can't like it's, you know, there's this great video on YouTube of, um, David Grohl, Dave Grohl, David, David Grohl sitting down <laughs> at a child's drum set, like a very miniature drum set. And he just starts wailing on it. And it's beautiful. You're like, oh, there is like a world-class drummer and it does not matter what he's playing. And uh, it doesn't sound like that if I hit drums. So, you know, like it, it is not at all the thing that you end up, the, the tool, it's how you use it. I mean. Well, one of the things that's, that's not obvious enough. If you can kind of step past uh, this conversation and say, imagine that we're going to not think of how it's ruining it and how it's bad and whatever, but then how you can use them to your advantage and, and when they don't work. There's a very similar conversation in the video wor world with what are called LUTs. And LUTs is an acronym that stands for lookup tables. And it's very similar to a look that you apply to your image because almost any uh, cinema quality camera that is that can shoot a feature film or that is you know one of the high-end ones, they'll shoot in an incredibly wide spectrum, very flat image, or they'll shoot raw. And both of those types of cameras have such an undesirable beginning image. They come out so flat and yeah, so ugly yeah. that, Garbage. You, that you have to think of it as a two-step process. Mm -hmm. It's like out of camera isn't something you could publish. It has to be color graded or managed. And sometimes you can start with a lookup table, which is a pre-established look that's very similar to like a VSCO look. It's basically the little file that Lightroom looks for that just, it remembers like, okay, the contrast was turned up to here yeah. and the points on the curve were at all these different spots. And it's just, it just remembers the settings and applies them. And, uh, but it's standardized. It's like, you always do this. It's not, um, it's not like a question of like, do you want to use it? It's like, yeah, you just, you just do this because why, why would you not? It's the most logical time effective thing to do. And there's no debate over it really. And one example, if I could say, I'm not sure how I'm going to bring this into photography, but I remember I asked a, a well-known uh, video crew that was, they're well-known for shooting documentaries. Uh, they had gone through their workflow and I was at a workshop of theirs. And I said, why, if you can shoot flat and you can have LUTs and you can do all that, why would you ever not shoot flat when you shoot a documentary? And they said, documentaries become way too complex when you have like five plus people and multiple teams and the, the color grading process or making it all kind of look the same is very hard from shot to shot to shot. So you have to have some based standardized look that each camera is like applied. So there's a LUT or a, a, a like if you can imagine in terms of VSEO presets, you take a, a base look before the, the little adjustments are done and you'd apply it to all cameras just so the whole film would, would have the same kind of general vibe. And it'd be very similar to shooting on, on film on a certain stock of film. But that's like if you uh, knew that you had to do a campaign for one client and you wanted to have an echo, a look that echoes over all of them, 
you can either make your own light Lightroom profile for a photo and save it as a user preset. And you can spend as much time as the people that that at, at VSAO or Masson Labs take on it. You could make almost the same thing, but that takes a lot of your time, and uh, that's time I'm not willing to spend anymore. Yeah. And um, I probably won't get as close to the desirable product as they do because they spend a lot of time in color principles and appropriate, you know, things in the color sciences. And they really not just do the it time right. building it, but learning how to build something like this. Yeah. And they mm -hmm. make it really right. And I, I even have seen, as we all have, the leaps that have happened since these preset companies like birthed themselves, their inception of them. And now they're, they're coming out with such a beautiful, subtle looks and packs that emulate such good standardized feels that it's becoming a much more organic kind of relationship between good photographers is that it's just a, it's I feel like it's very similar to the relationship of shooting with a real film stock. Uh, what it must've been like anyway. <laughs> Can we all agree that VSCO just needs to bring some kind of desktop solution to their, the, the processing engine that is on the phone I, there's times that I just, I wish I could just ignore Lightroom for the day. And like, look, I have a dozen photos that came in through my 5D. I want to apply my phone presets to it because they look different. There's definitely a different oh, engine in yeah. there. And, um, well, and actually this will be my first criticism of all the Lightroom presets. And it's, I think generally it's just the Adobe engine is there's places where they actually fall apart between like neon lights. You'll often see it where between like the blues and the reds, there's a line, there's a hard yep. line. Oh yeah. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. I think we should all agree that if VSCO is going to make the effort to make a desktop solution of, of what the mobile experience is, then also take that mobile experience and put it directly into DSLRs so I can shoot <laughs> with <laughs> the looks. Uh, yes. <laughs> I want to see that on the, the, the screen on the back. I want to be shooting and seeing this it live. Boggles my, my mind. Come on, Chris, it, go shoot film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's what you're asking for, right? Just a film camera. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it blows my mind how bad all of the presets have always been on every internal camera. Cameron, we talked about this the other day of yeah. like Fujis are kind of getting okay, but nothing like what uh, the third party companies are doing for presets and none of the Canon presets are anything. They are ignore them. They're nothing. Yeah. And, uh, there's, you know, it's like, there's no reason that you would, you know, want to shoot with any of the Fuji presets when you could shoot raw and then just, you know, apply something that was way better. Well, I know that it, my in-camera experience of shooting specifically just the, using the example of shooting like high contrast monochrome on a, on a DSLR is if you shoot raw and apply a look uh, like one of the, the Canon looks, let's just use black and white as an example you can see black and white images in the back of your camera. And then when you put them into Lightroom, they just zero back out. They just standardize back to what the raw file would have looked like. So the only thing that changes is your experience of seeing on the back of your camera, a black and white image as you're shooting. Mm. Right. That's true. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a great example. And that is very similarly the relationship of a few of my friends that are good cinematographers. They will use lookup tables while they're shooting with high-end cameras just so on the monitor it looks closer to the final product because the final product inspires you a lot more when you can see the colors graded and not this flat image. Yeah. And it's just not as cool feeling like while you're shooting. It feels cooler if you can see it and feel it. So yeah, that makes sense. But actually, I wouldn't mind going back for a second to Instagram coming out with its filters because that was almost the first of this of this happening. Like 
I've already said that when Instagram filters came out, I was actually really impressed and I would use it just for, for the filter occasionally and not even upload it to the service and save it to the camera roll. And keep yeah, it. like this is the, yeah, this is the most, cause it was the most attractive filter I'd seen. The stuff that Apple was doing was really unattractive and uh, any, yeah. any of the other software was ugly. And in retrospect, so was Instagram, but yeah, yeah. But, it, but it was enough to entertain the fact that at the time, realistically, the filter itself did make the photo better in our, in our eyes and in our minds, we were like more inspired about the photo because it changed somehow. Yeah, we were right, like, Oh, it's right. great. And that feeling still exists. And it's kind of that, that reactiveness to, Oh my God, the, there's blues in the blacks. And it's, there's this kind of look applied to it. It, I think you, you become less reactive the more you see and the more you create and apply but still, I want to I want to focus on the fact that, th- like people first starting out, this is what gets you excited is the fact that you feel like a pro and you feel like your stuff's cool. And then you totally once you develop a look, then you start to make ideas with that look. Sometimes so I'll grab an image in the middle of a shoot to bring over to the computer because I'm like, okay, I just got to see what this is going to look like with something on it because that's the moment of like, ah, there it is. <laughs> yeah, t- yeah. Even though you know for a fact you got it, you still get that anxiety like, I don't know if I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then you see it, you're like, oh god. Instagram Instagram filters actually have gotten a little bit better lately. Not the actual not the actual filters, but the control. Yeah, the, the controls have bit, improved quite a lot. It's got a bit better. Like I've I've been using it for like it has perspective correction stuff now, which is nice. Yeah. The, um, and it's still missing from the VSCO app. The the yeah. funny thing, yeah, seriously, about, yeah, exactly. There's a couple of things that I'm wondering why they don't just kind of borrow from the other successes of the other apps. And yeah, but the uh, the funny thing still is uh, most mobile, unless you're shooting on a, a 5s or a, an iPhone six. Most mobile is like you apply the effect for it to be only be seen on a phone. Like for instance, Instagram sharpness, I, hmm. I use like, you know, maybe more than I should. Cause I'm like, Oh, it looks so good. And then whenever I see you it, on, it on your computer, like I, even, it's, uh... I, I use a five S right now. And I, I looked at my Instagram on a six uh, iPhone six plus the other day. And there was a couple of effects <laughs> that I only saw look bad once they yeah. were bigger. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Filtering for Instagram is a specific thing. Maybe that's why we even say that the processing on the iPhone is so much better is because we see it on an iPhone too. Yeah, exactly. And when we talk about yeah. stuff to buy, the only, like just buy VSCO. There's no other recommendation really. I mean, there are targeted apps that are helpful for all sorts of specific uses, but like for general color processing, can we all agree that that's. For the app? Yeah. The VSCO it, app. It doesn't cost anything anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. Sorry. It filters in it. Oh yeah. 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 All the filter packs. Um, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Which but there's plenty of free stuff that's suitable. Yeah. I'm surprised. So it doesn't really how, matter how often people that shoot a lot don't purchase stuff. And yeah, I I, like, I've never bought any of this. Really? I own every no. single pack. I own it the day it comes out <laughs> in VSCO. Yeah. I still have the freemium, like and, the free. And that's all. Yeah. That's the it. The freemium. Love weird. it. No, I, I'm not. I'm yeah. I don't know. I don't like to spend money like that. But like for $10, you could own basically everything they've made, which is a fraction of what any of these other filters were about to talk about cost. But but then I'm, I feel obligated to take more pictures with my phone, which is good. No, I have 11 cameras. Like, you know, like I like to use a a mix and I like to use them specifically. There are things I love to shoot with my phone. That's fair. But I I don't want to be like, no, I'm just going to use my phone. So I, you know, make it my money's worth of this crap. Hmm. Well, your money, consider it's not that much money. Yeah. I, All right. Well, you guys are crazy, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I would also give a little bit of a shout out to camera plus. 
Like I haven't used it that Hammer. much. Yeah. In com- in Not anymore. No, my shout out goes to Snapseed for sure. Oh, really? For okay. one specific reason, which they have a selective adjustment mm-hmm. and you can go in and it will kind of intuitively select. Like if you put the adjustment over top of a highlight area and then, and then grow the size of the adjustment, it's like a brush that only goes in the highlights. So you can select secondaries and. Oh, so it's like an auto mask. Yes. It's very much the same as how auto mask works in Lightroom. Yeah. Huh. That is almost the only, one of the few other apps I ever use is yeah. Snapseed for that. Like, okay, the sky just needs to be brighter or darker here. Or yeah. like, I just have to fix this, like make this Or you uh, get red so less, close to your final look, but your subject is just a bit dark, you know? And you're like, but how am I going to save it with, is it the shadow slider? No, no, no. Is it the, this slider? No, no, no. It's a local adjustment. You have to create a shape around. Yeah. And the actual color presets in there, none of them are good. It's, it's just the, some of those processing tools. And similar, there's one uh, Pixlr, which is from uh, the Auto, Autodesk. Um, makes it and they have some good uh, like really specific tools like healing brushes and I need to heal at a spot that's that does it and I'm sure VSE will never do that so you're doing healing on your phone yeah wow (laughs) it's a free app too you know I'm kind of wondering you know how we were talking about Canon's like color profiles just sucking and the in camera is no (laughs) good I'm wondering why Apple hasn't created the best possible looks. Why well, they aren't the VSCO yeah, why of mobile. Didn't, why didn't VSCO get purchased at wow. any point? I'm actually surprised like that Adobe or Apple or even Google, like Google bought Nick software, but nobody's yeah, buying VSCO. Google bought Snapseed as well. well they're they're yeah. part of Nick. Yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I just have no idea how still, like, you know, the the leap that just happened in, in iPhone editing was like they gave you shadow and highlight control in the native app. And that's huge, but still it's, well, like for instance, on, on Androids, there's curves like in their native app, you there's full blown oh, curves yeah. in, built into it. Yeah. And I don't have a go-to app for curves on yeah. my phone. I know they, I know some exist, but I, I tried them and didn't like them. So I never yeah, have it's anything. Fa- it's fantastic. And I, I think how hasn't Apple just snatched that up based on the fact that like their pre their, their looks should be the best. You know, it's weird. They demoed VSCO as the example of their extensions um, editing at the announcement, there was a like you know edit with VSCO inside of the Photos app, and that's not something VSCO has done. And I'm starting to feel like they won't end up doing. It's, yeah, it's kind of strange. I'm craving that. Yeah, but uh, um, and that's so that's on the phone. I mean, there's others that you can look at. There's Afterlight. Uh, I don't really love it. I I don't know everything else that I go to after using VSCO a lot. Nothing else. It's worth mentioning. You know what I kind of feel is the best result of mobile photographers too? Because I follow some Instagrams that are just incredible and I kind of have a relationship with who I know and feel is shooting on their phone and editing on their phone. But it's similar to the result of not letting like a VSCO or Mastin Labs direct your style. It's that you use just a little bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of this to add up to the style you see in your mind. And like that's that's the funny thing of, Sometimes I think I'm ingenious where I'm like, oh, I'm using all these apps together. And then I'll see someone else that I'm like, oh, yeah, he takes good photos too, or he or she takes good photos. And I'll see them f- like export out of this one, import into this one, do this adjustment here into this, and then post to Instagram. And I'm like, aha, not mm-hmm. the only person that's like using a bunch of different stuff to create a look. And similar, you know, whether it be using Photoshop and, uh, and Lightroom mm-hmm. together, and then maybe um, a little bit of a, like, for instance, I do this with composites a lot where I'll, 
create a composite that is color corrected. So all the whites are whites, the blacks are blacks, it's color correct in Photoshop. And then as a PSD, you'll bring it back into Lightroom and then put a VSCO filter on it. Cause it kind of just cohesively yeah, brings some it all layering like that. Together. Yeah. I, I guess I also forgot the one that the one was hipstamatic from yeah. back in the day that what they like, I can't recommend it now, but uh, opened my mind to these interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's shift to the desktop stuff, uh, which is, you know, what we're, what a lot of people are most concerned about is the quality of their, their high end photos. There were photos that they're doing for work that they're going to be, you know, um, uploading to a stock site or shooting for a wedding. And then, um, what you go through there. So we chose a few of the popular ones here that, uh, we had seen other people use or we use ourselves or we're just familiar with, and there'll be some of these in the show notes. So if you go to stallman.com slash cameras or whatever, slash seven, episode seven, right? Mm-hmm. You'll, um, you'll be able to look at some of these photos and, uh, get a sense of what we are looking at here. So the examples are, we've got some straight out of camera examples and we have Mastin Labs, VSCO and Replichrome, which is from Rad Labs and Rad Labs makes a few different things, but we're only going to be really looking at the Replichrome series because the others are, um, they don't quite fall into the same category of film simulation, yeah. which, um, filters don't have to replicate film to be beautiful. That just seems to be the metaphor that everybody got really excited about. They could be called something unrelated to the film presets and still be great. Um, but it's, I think it's good because it gives us all a common way to think about it. So in the examples that we're using, we are looking at the portrait 400 of each, um, filter set. Cause it gives us a bit of a baseline to see what they look like. And in the examples that I am using to compare, uh, there's a little bit of liberty taken with matching the exposure a little, cause some of them behave differently between both the white balance and the exposure. So they are not zeroed out. Um, on, well, the ones that I did anyway, I'm not sure about yours, Cameron, but I made some very small changes because I would never just apply a preset and then accept it. If, if it was slightly underexposed at that point, like I would always barely tweak it so that basically, so the skin tones felt right. Yeah, I, I did a little bit of that because you said that you were doing that. And so I, I tried to keep them somewhat similar, but I also wanted to retain some of the subtle changes between them. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some, you know, because I started off on the same white balance. Um, but, you know, you apply the preset and all of a sudden the white balance shifts. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. And I think the best place to observe it is in Mastin labs, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. It, I find that you need to deal with the exposure and white balance afterwards. It's not as forgiving as the others are, where they'll kind of just gently sit on top of the photo that you took. Mm-hmm. Um, Mastin labs will really push it in a direction. And well, it's part of his theory, right? Right. Yeah. You, if you want, you, you kind of have to watch his how to video to really get a, a grip on it. And actually Anya who like, you know, she edits a lot of the work that we shoot as well, but she never uses Mastin labs. Cause what you, when you just throw it on a big batch of photos, some of them will look completely wrong and weird. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you kind of have to get used to how to deal with that. And some people just may not like that and may not be able to get used to it. Um, and a, a, another difference with his approach is that there are very few filters. Um, when, when I was showing Chris, uh, it was like, well, you know, here's, here it is. And he's like, where are the rest of them? 
<laughs> yeah, because there's only a couple. And when you get a, a VSCO, even a single VSCO pack, there's a bunch. And then they have six or seven packs. So if you were to purchase all of them, it's a lot. There's there's a lot of choices. Yeah, it, it takes over your whole uh, filter it, list. Yeah, it's like it's overwhelming. And yeah, uh, that goes back to the theory behind it again. So with the Visco um, or VSCO, what are we calling that? Let's. I, I, call, just, I like Visco because it's easy for me to say. You say that. Yeah, I'll, I'm going to say that from now on. <laughs> Visco. It's the with American Visco, pronunciation. We'll use the Canadian. Yeah, VSCO. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Like I feel like you know what makes Visco fun is that it's just a bunch of stuff to play with. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the theory behind Mastin Lab's process is, is to match it to specific films. That's why he's only doing films that are available. Right. Yeah. He right. Uh, has a bit more of a hybrid, like hybrid is the priority that you are both mm -hmm. going to shoot film and digital at the same event. And then you'd like to bring those looks together so that they match. That was his biggest priority when he created it. And I think it's, he, maybe he's been opening it up a little bit lately to make it uh, useful for a wider audience. But um, he started off with just uh, the one filter of, of, of portrait for quite a while. Mm -hmm. um, and now there's a few different ones. So I'll say right out of the gate, Mastin is my go-to now. It's what I'm using on most work by default. It's the default. Right away, I either put on the um, portrait 400 or the uh, Fuji 400H and decide... Basically, if I want my skins or the greens to be pushed in one way or the other, that's where they both respond the most differently. And mm -hmm. then usually I'll go from there. Um, I will go to VSCO if I'm like experimenting a bit more and I'm not sure what I want. But mm -hmm. Mastin has this kind of cleanliness to it. it um, it's a bit punchier. It's a bit more contrasty than most of the VSCO stuff by, yeah. by default. Um, and sometimes I'll back down on that a little bit. But uh I generally find it to just kind of be my, what has started to look like a default to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm new to Master Labs, but my initial impressions are, wow, this is really great. <laughs> like it's, it's not that complicated for me to understand. And it, uh, you know, it's, it's responding in a way that like I've become more familiar with again, because I started shooting film. Well, I do this thing now that, what really got me in the habit of using Mastin is that also since things kind of look wrong, if the exposure is off, it gives me a target and I start knowing it, like it pulls me towards um, my expo my final exposure setting or my white balance setting. And it gives me a bit more of a sense of like, Oh, well I can tell this is right because everything else just felt completely wrong to me. Mm -hmm. um, so often I'll use a Mastin labs filter to give a baseline look. Then I'll, if, if I'm going to be working on the image a lot, then I'll bring it into Photoshop and maybe have a few targeted curves layers. If I really want to dial it in, mm -hmm. but often, I mean, like with a wedding, we would just, we'd put everything out there just with uh, Mastin straight on it, basically synced. And then you play with the exposure and the white balance a bit to, to dial it to where you want. Yeah. Do you have any complaints about Mastin? I, I have a few, but I'll let you start if you have any. Um, you know, I, I'm still a little bit too new with it to have any any strong feelings. That the, the one thing that really caught my attention and seems to be the master effect and what is uh, what you're saying is the contrasty punchiness of it is that you know if you look at it, like he's got the the contrast slider jacked. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, that was the first thing Chris said, and that. 
that was like, you know, my entire relationship with Lightroom up until, you know, downloading the, this Master Labs product was that like, don't touch that damn thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that's just, it's, it's like auto destruct. Um, <laughs> so I was really surprised to see that. And so my initial impression was, uh Oh, you know, like, what's this gonna, what's this gonna do? And, well, and what you'll find out as you play with it more is that it's doing, a, it's not that there ends up being way more contrast in the image, but that VSCO was putting it in somewhere else. They were more using the tone curves mm -hmm. to inject a, that it, their contrast. Well, you know what I was saying earlier about the specific effects that are just a weird byproduct of how you combine the sliders, like the vibrance all the way up, saturation all the way down kind of weirdness is you don't know why sometimes why it's doing what it's doing, but it's achieving effect that um, if I were to talk about video um, grading it, you, you do it more on purpose in video grading and you do it more just as a byproduct of these combination of sliders. Now, if I can just say that as an example, if you imagine the contrast is using luminance only, so it's using all the brightnesses from pure white to pure black and the spectrum of pure white to pure black is 255 value. So it's zero to 255. The contrast, if you fully slide that slider, it might leave the pure whites and the pure blacks alone. And it might just use from, imagine zero is black and 255 is white. It might be from 15 to 235 is what the contrast is adjusting. And then the shadow slider might be from zero to all the way, like all the way through the shadows. So you are actually just, just subtly getting at different parts of the value where you might think, oh, they're doing exactly the same thing, but they're not. And one of the things Mastin does is jacks the slider, the contrast slider all the way up and then retains the highlights with the, the highlight slider and the shadows a little bit with the shadow slider. And then the black slider as well. They're all kind of subtly complementing how how much the contrast is slid over to the side. And it might be, I don't know, th this would be a hard thing to know for a fact, but it might be the only way to get that exact look yeah. out of Lightroom. Well, if you look at his final, hist the histograms on stuff that comes out of Mastin Labs, it'll often come a lot closer to the edges of your histogram. Like, I think his aim is really to hit the bottom and top. Um, and you know, not go past them. So, sometimes it does actually peak, which kind of, I, I don't love. And I think I don't see VSEO doing as much. They kind of have a hard limit, but, um, usually, yeah, it just almost clips and that's part of the more contrasty look. And I know that he, uh, hit, like in his theory, that's a bit more of a timeless look. Like he's, he's of the opinion that, uh, uh raised shadows is going to look dated and it's probably true. Um, it is true. It's already true. It, but it might be um, what's so funny. And if I can go back to what that that chalkboard, that visual effects guy had on there, the 0 0.001 is your friend. Uh, I think the raised blacks is like the massively raised blacks is uh, is going to be dated. But like I did a, um, I read a blog the other day. It was a cinematography breakdown on the on the movie Inglorious Bastards, and it was showing the color grade from every single composition on the side, like a color palette of that frame. And it looked, you could have swore it was pure, true black and pure, true white. And it showed you this is on the spectrum. It said, this is pure white. And this is what the white point of this image is. And this is what the black point is. And it was so subtly different, yeah. but it's the exact subtlety that gave the, the look and feel, whether it be 
the warmth of raised blacks, the tiny little feeling you get from not harsh black blacks, but like very subtly raised blacks. I totally know what you're talking about. And I actually have modified my Maston Labs a bit. So he has built into it some like um, softening presets that will, you can either soften the whole image, which is the highlights and shadows or target the highlights and shadows. And I've adjusted all of those in my use to tweak the tones, the tone curve to basically like um, put a hard limiter, the whitest white and the darkest dark so that I'm never actually getting a true black or a true white, but I'm really close. So it doesn't have that like lifted look or really compressed look, but there's always that there's a little bit left. We don't quite hit a true black. You know, a, f a fun test to do uh, that not a lot of people do. I know the engineers that build these kind of uh, plugins or, or sorry, presets do is go into Photoshop and just get a, uh, a composition, just a blank document and make a gradient from black to white and then bring that back into Lightroom. And then with that black to white gradient where it just is black on one site, white on the other and gray in between. Oh yeah. Apply yeah. all the, see the presets it onto yeah. it. Totally. So you can see what it is actually doing to the grays, the contrast, the whites, the blacks. Cause that's, you know, that's how a lot of Photoshop things are taught is how curves works is you, you don't do it to an image. You do it to something that is an objective measurement, which mm -hmm. is a gradient. It's like, yeah, that's what a is idea. actually it's a good happening? Exercise. So if you wanted to see exactly the difference between the Mastin labs, the VSCO labs, take exactly the, what they're saying are the same and just apply it to a gradient and see what it's actually doing to the black point, the white point and everything in between. Mm. That'd be great homework. Or maybe, maybe I should do that and share it with everybody. I'm, I'm not, I'm like not it. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. I've done it years ago. I'm not doing it again. Um, I'll also say that I know Mastin targets, um, what would be kind of the micro contrast a bit. So the clarity is not brought up at all, but you will definitely see there is more of a, a sharpness in the tones somehow. Mm -hmm. I have absolutely no idea how this works, but there is a bit more separation in some of the tone variations, uh, than, than VSCO does, um, they tend to have a bit of a, a flatter, softer look, even uh, even at a similar contrast level. The skin mm -hmm. will, you'll see a, just more separation in, in different tones in the skin in Mastin Labs. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's Mastin. Oh, also I really hope he takes off the default lens corrections in his filters because that drives me crazy. I would have assumed yeah. that default lens corrections would have been the default, but well, uh, the reason that he does it is because to match to medium format or, or to some 35 um, in medium format, you don't ever have vignetting really. And it was that if you're trying to match the two, they wouldn't match. You'd have two of the same image side by side and the digital would have these edges on it that the medium format wouldn't. So as to remove that, but uh, I end up having to, I pulled it out of my filter. Um, I like, and then save it back over top of right. itself. Yeah. That's how, that's how I've been working with. Yeah. So. That's actually something that not a lot of people think to do is to just figure out how this relationship with the look works for you on like a day-to-day -day basis. And if it, if you purchase it and it's a tiny yeah. little subtle change you want to make, make it. Don't be afraid to. Yeah. And save it over the, top of itself or save it a, as a new one. There's a tutorial that VCO has created that'll walk you through all that on how to do it for them. So I think it's worth taking a look at. Um, let's look at a rad labs for a second, which I never really do. I don't really use it. I just, uh, <laughs> we just have some samples of it for this, but I know a lot of people talk about it or ask questions about it. I know it's quite popular. Um, 
most of their looks I find to be overdone. Um, there's one thing that jumped out at me that they've, they're the only ones that do a boost to the clarity slider, which mm. I, I don't ever think to do that anymore. I do not touch the clarity slider now. No, it's evil. I'm all, I'm all about negative clarity lately. <laughs> like I was Mr. Clarity for like, for a while, but negative clarity and giving just the tiniest little bit of like spray out of the highlights it is, uh, is great. Like 10 points, you know, minus negative clarity is, is money especially I don't know if anyone has, has used this trick, but for uh, getting less of a tonal sharpness for skin using yeah. the local brush on negative clarity is how you do that on the, on faces and skins is just to give it less of this like sharpness to itself and more of a softness. And I'm talking like two, three minus two. Yeah. Just be yeah, careful. A little it. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Not, I not, actually, I use that as well. I, mean, I use that like for headshots. It's quite good. It actually yeah. like part of me wants to always think the more complex answer is the best answer. And honestly, when <laughs> I started using that specifically, like the local brush in, uh, in Lightroom, I kind of learned how auto masking works and, and used it, you know, to its advantage cause it fails a lot. And then I also kind of realized what its limits are, but honestly skin with negative clarity is fantastic. So just a uh, little. Yeah, just just a little bit, just a little bit. And again, yeah, I, if I can state it again, the one thing that the is uh, a standard inside of video uh, color grading is the thousandth of the percentage is what you can actually change. So the one of the reasons you use a physical interface like with the balls is because you can so uh, so subtly move them around and it changes thousandths of a degree of, of a percentage. Yeah, I would love and a plug-in so that I could buy one of those control boards to work on uh, Lightroom. I've wondered why, what's the disconnect between the uh, the Lightroom interface or having a, t a multi-touch interface? Yeah. Uh, why, why is nobody interested in that? Why am I not interested? I often oh, wonder that. Yeah. I would take a board that just is the Lightroom interface and like, let me turn each dial. Like, right. I'm sure a generic, <laughs> you could have like a MIDI device that, you know, maps to these things. I bet you could hack it or somebody already has actually, I bet. But I like Adobe, just give me something official. I'll pay you for it. Yeah. Um, but well, you know, I'm kind of excited of where this is going to go as well, because the Adobe interface and the kind of the relationship with the sliders and specifically what Adobe Camera Raw has been, I'm not sure if they're going to keep growing it, but I often wonder what is the future of this software. It's like where it's going to go because it has to keep changing somehow. Mm -hmm. It has to keep getting better and cooler and well, more user friendly. The big update to uh, when was it 2012? I don't remember when they switched everything over in, in the Adobe processor to the new slider names and the, do, the new way that it works. That was huge. So huge. Completely <laughs> changed the way that everybody's photos look. Oh my God. It was massive. Yeah. It was the shadow and highlight slider instead of the, the fill fill light yeah. oh yeah. my god <laughs> and you had to like i almost felt compelled to go back and reprocess everything <laughs> everything i don't ever. know if you yeah. almost felt compelled because that's exactly what i did <laughs> i was like oh god this isn't like a i'm not compelled to do it and then not do it i it's it, even you know now i'll go back to some of my images that i swear to myself i'm like that is done that's a version of art i've created in the past and i'm like Ugh. And I'll, you're like George Lucas and I'll update it. And then maybe I'll, I swear Special I've, editions. I've even gone <laughs> to some of my images that I shot forever ago and I've shot and I've put some of these presets on it. I put like a, a VSCO preset back on it. And I think, I, I don't know how I feel about this. They do it with music too. You know, I mean, albums are remastered. 
You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, one of the things also that happened with that light Lightroom upgrade was the um, the Adobe Color Space. It went to a 2012 Color Space as well, and it actually grew the latitude, the the information that it got out of raw files. Is so that how it happened? Yeah, it was a tremendously bigger spectrum yeah. that it was seeing into these raw files. I could see it in the images. I didn't. I don't really understand how they did it. You could but feel you it. Yeah. So if you go into the camera I mean, calibration, I, I think your options are now, I think it's Adobe color space 2012 or 2013. And then the one that it used to be, there's like Adobe RGB 98 and blah, blah, blah. And the newest one <laughs> was what kind of enabled the extra amount of information to be gotten out of these files. Right. Which is what, like, I think that that comes back, circles back around to, uh, you know, why products like Visco and Mastin Labs are able to exist. Yeah. That, that because is the exact they, reason. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I feel like we kind of strayed away from talking about Rad Labs. <laughs> well, I just don't have that much to say. What do you have to say about it? Well, so I, I think that like as a kind of fun product, that's how I think of it. I think of it as just something that like, you know, you want to, you know, apply it to your, your Flickr images, you know, or something like that. Like, I, I just can't take it serious for a professional use. Right. But I know, you know professionals ask about it. I know they consider it. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean. Is it cheaper? I don't think so. Let's, let's take a look. Store. Yeah, I'm trying to quickly get there too. Uh, uh, it's, it's a little, it depends on which one you get. The Replicom, Replicrome, actually, is, uh, is $20 cheaper than either Visco or Mastin Labs. So it depends. Yeah. Yeah, but like, I oh mean, my God, I'm looking at this like in, in their store, right? And you see, are you looking at the store? Yeah, I'm in the store. All right. So like, you know, you look at the Rad Lab and the most expensive one, Rad Lab, 149. And it's got this like green skin portrait. And I'm like, wow. Like, <laughs> people still do that. People want to pay for terrible. I'm looking through the VSCO site right now, like all their samples mm -hmm. and the stuff they select even though a lot of their filters I feel like are overdone when I apply them, the way that they curate their images, like everything looks beautiful. There's a few that are overdone, but for the most part, all of their samples are so attractive, <laughs> just look really nice, even in uh, presets that I don't end up personally using. Yeah. Um, and I think they do a great job of understanding when a specific look is is really useful. What, um, what are your guys' favorite... VSCO filter. What do you, Cameron, what do you reach for most, most often? I go for the first pack most often. Mm -hmm. and what, what in the first pack? I kind of remind us what's uh, in each one. Yeah. So I, I generally use the, the Portra 160 and or 400. Yeah. Those are the ones that I go to most often because I just find them to be the closest to true. Mm -hmm. um, at least from my perspective. Yeah. That's why I think they're a good comparison for the Mastin Labs is because like they're also they're my go-tos as well. And they're, well, you know, the same. Yeah. yeah. So I find that the, uh, the Visco version of the Fuji 400 is a bit yellow in my opinion. And, uh, you know, I always have to go in, like if I do end up using it, cause there are times that, that, I, that I have used it and felt like, ah, oh, that's, that's, that's it. But like, I feel like I always go back to that split toning, and turn that yellow down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't end up using it that often. I actually the Fuji 160C sometimes I use, but I don't know. Um, I totally agree that the first pack maybe they got it the most right there. 
Yeah. Is, like what's the one that's really crazy uh, that has all the Polaroids? I want to say four or three, three, three. Yeah. yeah, three, yeah. Ugh, some of those are very dangerous. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I, I just don't really see the the point of applying something like that to, you know, a, a photo that I'm shooting on my Nikon D800. Yeah. To me, it feels like you're trying to create something interesting out of. Well, it's just, it, it's like the height of inauthenticity. You know right. what I mean? It's yeah. like. It just, I like it. Cause I, I really love like the, the Fuji Instax. Like I love the tones. Yeah. The actual, the actual. Yeah. yeah. Like those are amazing. And like, so if I want that, I'll just take that camera. Have you done this it hybrid costs, shooting thing ever? Like that, uh, Mastin's into where you shoot the film and di- digital right next to each other and then match no, them up? No, um, no. And it's specifically because he's telling us right out from the, the get go that, that this is, you know, specifically matched for the frontier scanner you know so like i'm mm-hmm. using a nikon there's just there's just no way that i'm going to be able to do it without like a lot of pain right right yeah so no um you know i feel like whatever i'm getting from my film is is unique yeah. you know and and i'm happy with that because you know frankly i think that there are uh, a few too many people that are relying on the noritsu and and uh frontier look you know, and I think it's beautiful and I think that, you know, it, but it's just like everything else. It turns into a fad, you know, right. Um, if everybody ends up having really the the same tone to everything. Yep. And was, I mean, there's a lot of really beautiful looks, but you know, I don't know. I'd rather have my own thing. So Cameron, what do you think if you're going to go buy one thing today, what would it be? Um, right now I'm going to absolutely say like, God, it's really, really hard for me to say this. <laughs> All right. So right now I'm, I'm very much like intrigued and pleased by the look of the Mastin stuff. Um, but I think that for the money, the uh, Visco one pack is probably going to like carry you a little bit further. Um, however, if you're really concerned about the quality of your look being consistent and right, I would definitely stick with Mastin stuff. What are you, Chris? Looking at looking at what we've looked at today, where do you go? I would probably just agree in um, VSCO for. I like having more options. Um, part of me just I'll restate what I said before, which is I don't know yet what I don't know, and to get some of these packs, go out and shoot and see what the the looks feel like and see what how your style jives with it and that whole thing. That's fun. That's, I don't know. That's kind of what keeps it adventuring in the unknown of like the total trial and error unknownness. And, um, there are a couple of the VSEO packs that aren't as packed with, you know, usable stuff that might usable is the wrong word. And I also think right is the wrong word mm-hmm. because, you know, whether it be, not timeless and very timely. So it's like only hot while it's hot. I I don't know, you know, to each their own, we can all do our own thing. But I think that there are principles in the probably VSCO one pack that are adhered to a little bit better that probably will transcend. It'll make it usable next year and maybe the next year and so on. So it might be the best bang for the buck in that fashion in that way. But it doesn't also mean that it's the most amount of fun in general. It's just might be the best bang for the buck. So explore them as much as you want. And 
I think that Mastin's um, mentality with having less and focusing not on infinite options and all this stuff, put some walls up around your creative process and work with less is also a very good way to create is to, is to. It's like, a bit more of a film approach yeah. to stick a roll in and then worry like about also, it later. It, it fosters consistency, mm-hmm. which um, I think these days it's just, there are way too many options. It's way too easy to go off the rails, you know? So that's, the, that's what is so attractive to me about Madison's products is that it's like, it's right. In my opinion, it's just, it's where it should be. And there are enough controls within it. And also, I mean, you still have the whole of Lightroom to tweak it. Yeah, you can still do anything you want with the photo afterwards. Absolutely. But like, if, if I'm looking for a starting ground, like I'm, I'm super stoked on it. I will go with Mastin for my vote. I couldn't really imagine not owning both. Mm-hmm. I just can't like I, imagine it. <laughs> just like I buy every single Visco pack. I couldn't, uh, yeah, no, I can't, I can't imagine going back. Yeah. Um, and I'll, even though I'll, <laughs> lately I usually end up using a Mastin filter, I'll usually also click a bunch of VSCO ones just to see. I want to know like, what is too contrasty? What's not contrasty enough? How do they look? What am I missing out on? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, I don't exclusively use it at this point, but, uh, it's, it's definitely my go-to and I really, really like it. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you, if you're not already familiar with all these things, like I, like I said, there's going to be links in the show notes so you can find each specific thing that we're talking about. Um, so, yeah. I'm just going to add this, this slightly nerdy tech note on here that <laughs> for anyone that doesn't already use Photoshop with Lightroom, I just want to give you the faith in yourself that it's an easier process than you think to use both programs co- and coexist in both programs with this basic workflow, which is while you're in Lightroom on a Mac, Command E or Control E on a PC will launch it from your image into Light or into Photoshop with that same image. What mm-hmm. it does is it creates another image that's labeled as either a TIFF or a PSD, whatever you you designate. And all you have to do is do whatever you're going to do in Photoshop, and then close it. Like go up to the X, close that image in Photoshop, and it says, "Or oh, are you sure you want to close? You know, you should save it." just press save. And what it does is goes right back into Lightroom and goes right beside the original image. So your Photoshop adjusted image is right beside your original raw image. And there it's like, that's what I would suggest while taking the leap into one of these packs. Mm -hmm. Also know that there's as much, if not more of a leap to be made with a mentality of learning what a, what a secondary local adjustment in Photoshop, like what, when you start to really go in and sculpt color specifically in Photoshop, that's very, very fun to do as yeah, well. Yeah, They live w- very well beside each other. And I, again, similarly, I couldn't imagine having one without the other. Yeah. Can't that's great. It. That's really great information. And I, I'll just add that if you're not on a Mac, um, you can always just right click edit in Photoshop and it's going to do the exact same thing. I'm pretty sure that yeah. on PC it's control E. Is it? I think. Well, in either case, you can still right click. It would be Command E on. It would be Command E on a on a Mac and Control E on a PC, right? Yeah. Or right click on either. Yeah. You can also set. You can define. Oh, this isn't very interesting. You can define (laughs) which uh, app you open it into. Yeah, I can open another secondary app, and also you can go in and say, "Do you want it to make a TIFF or PSD?" That's all like tech. But the the non intimidating fashion of it is that it's it's a lot easier to just launch into. Photoshop, do one simple thing and bring it right back into Lightroom. I should also say everybody should go and change their, where is it? Catalog settings where you change the 
default um, color profile that you're editing in Photoshop. I've seen that throw people off before. Um, Maybe that's another episode. I don't know. I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Where is it? Uh, so you go into preferences, external editing, and just make sure your color space, unless you know what you're doing, isn't set to pro photo RGB, or you may end up running into unexpected complications. Mm -hmm. I've seen that throw a few people off. So, but yeah, that is a, uh, that's definitely a fun, a very fun journey to take. And I won't lie. It's very intimidating as well, because most things, when you get more specific with them and you learn like the art of color it is there's the reason why that colorist is a whole profession in like filmmaking mm -hmm. is because it's very complicated it's 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 there's a lot of details and there's a lot of things you can tweak and there's a lot of ways you can do it and there's a lot of psychology that you can apply to it so i think it's just a worthy path to to go on if you're interested in how your images look and the colors that are being used to and, alter and, that look. And we all agree that these presets are a nice way to get something approaching that without uh, learning it all yourself. Thanks guys. Thank you. Well, thank you. That was great. I hope uh, we helped somebody out there make some decision. Yeah. Cool. Thanks cool. Cameron. Great. See, See ya. ya. Thanks Chris. Great. See you guys. Bye. Bye.